tell me about your favorite books. Welcome to the Left on Red podcast, where we talk about the books you love. I am here today with a very good friend of mine, Dylan. Dylan, how are you doing? Doing good. How are you? I'm doing good after that uh, after that breakfast we just had. We did. We just did have good breakfast. <laughs> I had some eggs and bacon. Classic. And I, had, I had the uh, country fried steak. Was it a good one? Um, it always is. Sometimes it's hit or miss at breakfast places, but... I mean, I've never been disappointed with uh, with a country fried steak, but (laughs) (laughs) can't get that wrong. Yeah. So uh, Dylan and I are very good friends who go pretty far back, back to high school. Mm -hmm. Um, We were in a ten year reunion for me this year. Eleven for you, probably. (laughs) Yes, yes. This year year will be our eleventh year (laughs) eleventh year reunion. (laughs) Did you go to your ten year? I really wanted to, and you know that I got a got a job out in Utah, and mm-hmm. so I moved just before the reunion, and it didn't make sense for me to come back for a night. I really don't want to go to my <laughs> tenure reunion. My wife wants me to, but yeah. Anyways, I don't, I don't. My, I'm. I probably don't have a very good excuse to not go. So we'll see. I mean, you know, it's a common story. A lot of people don't want to go, and. <laughs> I understand it. Yeah. <laughs> I really do. Um, I really liked high school. I had a lot of good friends, good memories, like, you know, mm-hmm. you even from from back in high school. And mm-hmm. what's cool is over these 10 years that I've been out, you and I have become even closer friends. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, you know, uh, right around the best friend area, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, no, it's, it's great to see you uh, as always, you know, mm-hmm. to spend a little time with you before I head back to Utah and back to normal life. Yeah. Thank you for uh, reaching out. Absolutely, man. All right. So, Dylan, tell me about your favorite book. Well, uh, when you asked me about doing this podcast, um, I was thinking of different genres of literature that I'm interested in. Um, yeah, I think probably probably my, my f- this is probably my favorite fiction book. It's The Picture of Dorian Gray, which I have here by Oscar Wilde. Um, Oscar Wilde was an Irish poet and author who lived in England in the 1800s. And, um, I wish I actually knew more about his life. Cause I think that would be important for this conversation, um, to provide a little context, maybe for some of the things that appear in his book. Um, one thing though, it's what, what is interesting is that he's writing this book at the end of the 1800s. So this is right after, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche has proclaimed the death of God. Uh, this is where existentialist f- philosophy is getting um, probably more popularized, or at least starting to um, take some roots. Uh, and I think he was influenced by that. And also, he—I don't—I don't believe he was religious, but he was very well read in religious texts like the Bible. And there is a story that he had some deathbed profession where he became a Catholic, I guess. Um, but all of that, uh, all of his life, I think really, this book provides maybe some interesting insights into the man who is Oscar Wilde. And something that's interesting about the book before we really get into it is that there's really three main characters in it. And I think that they're almost... There, there's lots of interpretations on some of the things in this book, um, but it seems like 
each of these like three main characters are vastly different and yet i think are united in so far as at least as a reader i can relate to all three of them and so they're almost like a trinity almost like aspects of like my own like almost an like aspects of human life and and we'll get into it that probably doesn't make a lot of sense right now but we'll get into it more um anyways oscar wilde fascinating guy this book is there's a lot of uh philosophy and i mean lots of interesting stuff stuff in a novel um so anyways it's a very unique book and um yeah it's one of my favorite books just because it uh raises a lot of questions about ultimate things and it uh, raises questions about human nature and i find it highly relatable on every end of the spectrum that it touches very cool very cool so you say that the book addresses or asks several questions um about i forget what you've said now uh did, did you say like moral questions or human yeah. questions yeah it it raises questions okay um, yeah, it raises questions. And the reason is, um, well, at the beginning of the story, we are presented with two characters who are vastly different. I mean, they are diametrically opposed in every way. The first is a guy named Basil Hallward, uh, good good British name, Basil. And, and then his friend, Lord Henry Wotton. And these guys are more different than... Uh, it's a very unlikely friendship and it's actually it's a really perplexing thing uh basil hallward is an idealist he is committed to the good the true and the beautiful he believes in objective morality he um he almost seems to be like a god-like character um not in in that he doesn't just ascribe to things like objective morals, but he, uh, he preaches it like he, he loves it. Um, and as we'll see a little bit later, um, him, him as kind of a godlike like character is really an interesting thing. But then his friend, Lord Henry Watton is totally the opposite. He is a moral relativist. Um, he you know is just flying by the by the seat of his pants he is living for the now uh you know he believes that beauty is totally in the eye of the beholder there is no objective beauty there is no what is good you know what is true uh, what's true for you is true for you what's true for me is true for me like it's very postmodern kind of feeling um and what's interesting is you know, he even there's even a passage in the first chapter where he talks about how he and his wife kind of like sleep around, but they always come back to each other. And he just has a really uh, kind of it's he, from the very outset, you think, okay, this guy is trouble. He is going to have some kind of corrupting influence on some other character in this book. And the fact that he is a friend with Basil is utterly perplexing because they seem to, you know, hold different values point for point, like on everything. Um, Okay. I forgot what the original question was. No, I mean, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious about these, these questions that the book is raising. Yes. Yeah. So it raises, it raises questions, um, 
because they talk about morality, they talk about existence in life, they talk about God, they talk about beauty. It raises a lot of um, questions about art and um, yeah, anyways, their conversations raises questions up within me about some of these things that uh, maybe we don't give a lot of thought to in our society. Yeah. yeah. So can you give me an example of one of these questions? Uh, yeah, well, um, so just for the topic of beauty, I think if, if there was one word, one theme that is probably the biggest in this book, it is beauty. Because the, uh, the art, so Basil Hallward is an artist and in this book in London at the end of the 1800s. And he comes across this man named Dorian Gray, who is utterly fascinating uh, just aesthetically, like just, he just looks at him and he's like, this guy, it, there's something about this guy that I have to capture on canvas. I have to paint this man. And he's like obsessed with this guy. And it's not a sexual thing. He's just like, I think the beauty that he exudes, he feels like points to some kind of moral beauty within him. But Lord Henry Watton, he kind of like, I think he's a little counterculture, rebellious, you know, there's a rebellious spirit about him. And uh, he's just very cynical, you know, like, I think he would um, pride himself as being a person who can see through people. I can see through the beauty that you exude you're probably not such a beautiful person on the inside that kind of thing so anyways it raises a questions about is beauty in the eye of the beholder uh you know what what does it mean when we say that someone is beautiful you're a beautiful person are we talking about how they look their character uh anyways it maybe it's more about morality than it is than it is beauty but um beauty is a word that keeps popping up uh, a lot, you know, innocence, perfection, beauty, moral, uh, morality. It's all kind of one, one conglomerate topic. So it's, it's kind of addressing these different values or, um, virtues. Yeah. And, and, and Basil would point to beauty. So he believes like beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. Like he would say, you stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon and you look out over the expanse and you know, like, this is beautiful. That awe that is welling up within you, like this is pointing to something like objectively true and good and beautiful. And Henry Watton's like, no, it's just, it just, you just, it just looks nice to you or something. Um, so anyways, standards, uh, the objectivity of things is brought into question a lot. And one of those things is beauty and ethics, morals, okay. values, duties. So what happens as a result of this Lord Henry um, kind of challenging the idea of, of beauty? Okay, so uh, let me tell you what happens in this story because this might illuminate some things. So Basil Howard sees this beautiful, handsome young man who has totally captured his artistic imagination, Dorian Gray. Um, and he draws a picture of him, but he doesn't want to show anybody the picture, which is really interesting. It's like his own little baby. Um, but 
Lord Henry uh, sees the picture, Basil shows him, and he gets really interested in meeting the man behind the picture. So he's like, I want to meet Dorian Gray. And Basil's like, no, 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 no. I think that would be a bad, bad idea. And you can tell that he is really fearing that Lord Henry is going to have some kind of damaging influence on this, you know, seemingly innocent, imperfect, beautiful man. Because Lord Henry is different. His, his philosophy of life is totally unconventional for the time. Postmodern, hedonistic, you know, he just, he believes that, you know, your own personal pleasure is kind of the highest good if he even believes that there's an objective good and, and bad. And Basil's fears are pretty well-founded because Lord Henry eventually meets Dorian. Now, here's, here's where this gets interesting. This starts pointing to other stories um, that we're probably familiar with is, uh, so Dorian goes over to Basil's house in chapter one or two. And they both go out into the courtyard in the garden, it's called. And in the garden, Dorian is admiring the lilies and some of the, uh, the, the plant life and stuff in the garden. It talks about in the garden. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Lord Henry comes in like a serpent okay. and starts. And this is what he actually says. One of the first things he says to him is something along the lines of, like, are you sure is it really the case that blah, 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 kind of mimicking the serpent's words in the Garden of Eden to Eve in Genesis chapter three. So there, there are very, very obvious allusions to Genesis chapter three in the first couple chapters of this book. Um, but what happens is Lord Henry, who is a philosopher, uses his crafty and persuasive speech to convince Dorian this seemingly innocent, beautiful, perfect young man, beautiful in every way. Like he convinces him that he's not living his life to the fullest that, and he convinces him like, I've, I've dedicated my life to the pursuit of, of pleasure. And he essentially convinces Dorian that he is not truly satisfied. Um, and Dorian is, convinced um he's convinced that he has been so really what what i think is happening is this there is a shift in dorian from if you think about like if basil is like the angel on his shoulder who has like all of this good influence on him you know hey we want to be committed to the good the true the beautiful like all this stuff uh lord henry watton is more of kind of like a devil on his shoulder and maybe that's an unfair characterization um Maybe, maybe it's slavery and freedom, <laughs> you know, maybe it's modernism and postmodernism, but there is, uh, well, what we'll see is that Dorian's life is going to unravel as a result of following, uh, Lord Henry's, um, totally lost the word. Persuasion? Yeah. Persuasions. <laughs> Dorian's life will eventually unravel because of his pursuit of the persuasions of Lord Henry. In what yeah. way does his life unravel? So, so there's this painting of Dorian, mm-hmm. which captures the essence of his beauty. And here's what happens is that he essentially gets excited about sin 
it's it's a weird thing because this is this is like a non-religious book but and maybe it's the time that this book was written but they talk about sin and um he just starts really like living for himself being very selfish um doing things uh that he that his conscience had restrained him previously from doing he kind of breaks free from his conscience and breaks free from certain standards and norms that he had previously accepted and um what's interesting though is that he desires it's really clear in the book that he desires to remain a beautiful man as the painting portrays but he also desires to have the pleasures of his heart and so there seems to be this dichotomy that you can't remain a beautiful person if you do things that are not beautiful if you live a very carnal, fleshly, self-seeking, hedonistic lifestyle, that seems to be uh, set up in contradistinction, I think that's the right word, to the beauty of Dorian's gray, you know, original innocence, if that makes sense. It does, but it leaves me with, I guess, this question about the original painting, or, mm-hmm. or, or even the original Dorian, I, if we can say that, like him changing into maybe a new Dorian. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it about the original Dorian that made him beautiful in a way that he is going to lack once he finds himself free of these norms that you that you're talking about right now? In in what is his beauty found? I guess like what aspect of Dorian is beautiful? Yeah, I think I think what makes him beautiful in the beginning and this isn't really spelled out very clearly um he is a phys- he appears to be a beautiful man but i think it is and you his, mean physically right yes but okay. but i think it is also his commitment to like righteousness like living a good trying to be a moral person um maybe try not to be like for i think at the beginning of the story like basil hallward the goal and objective of Dorian's life is not just to get, 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 uh, please, please me, pleasure me. Like it's not self-promoting. It's not self-seeking. There's a kind of innocence that is exuding from his character in his commitment to the good and righteousness. Um, but what happens is, well, I mean, there's a whole, something important here is I think that Unlike a lot of books, what is most important in this book is probably the beginning and the end of the book. And in the middle are all the details of how his life is unraveling through all of his, you know, uh, I would call escapades um, of licentious behavior and lifestyle. There's a little, you know, there's tons of little stories. There's one story where he marries an actress named Sybil Vane and he's cruel to her (laughs) and he just treats her like garbage and he... Um, drives her to the point where she takes her own life. And when that happens, Dorian's painting, which he has in his house, he comes across it and he sees that that painting now has a little crooked and evil smirk that has appeared on it. So it's interesting. Here, here's where this, this is why it's called the picture of Dorian Gray. This is where the book really becomes uh, quite fascinating is that imputed or transferred onto the painting essentially 
is all of Dorian's sins. So on the outside, he remains a beautiful man, but the painting is exposing the inside man. It's exposing more of the corruptedness and wickedness that has become his heart. Does that make sense? Yeah, it seems like the painting is kind of like a mirror into of the soul. his soul. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And he becomes terrified of this painting. He's terrified that this painting is going to expose all of his sins to people who see it. Yeah, and so he hides it uh, in a remote upper room in his house so that no one will be able to watch its transformation. So he keeps he keeps doing all of this, you know, living licentiously and all this. Um, Anyways, and, and his painting just becomes uglier and uglier and, un, and uglier. And so on the, on the inside, Dorian is really dissatisfied and tortured by his guilt. But on the outside, Dorian still appears to be innocent and perfect and beautiful. And so you have this, you have this idea. I think it was G.K. Chesterton, uh, who was an English uh, author and pastor. He was actually Catholic. Um, but someone once asked him in an interview, what is the problem with this world? And he responded, I am. And what, what he wasn't doing is he's not just taking ownership for his part of the problem, but what he's saying is like, I believe that there is an enemy in this world and that enemy, that greatest enemy is within me. This isn't just about owning up to my stuff. I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to make a change, but it's like there is evil in the world and it may be pouring out of me. Uh, and so it, it, this raises a lot of questions about, because I think that you and I who come to things with potentially different worldviews, we would both recognize that there is brokenness and there is almost a fallenness about this world. Like, you know, everything is tending toward death. That ain't cool. Uh, a lot of our closest relationships become fractured and splintered and end with uh, great hurt on both sides. Like, it seems like everything we touch has the potential to... Uh, become corrupted and maybe it's because there is a corrupting force there is a corrupting influence within us like we are capable i believe so this is where it gets personal like i see dorian going out and you know just living living a life that is very fruitless very self-indulgent very licentious and i resonate with that because i've been there there are things that I desire that I know or I believe I should not have. Like as a married man, you know, like seeing other women and I would be lying to tell you that lust is not, you know, part of every man's life in some way. And yeah, there are more beautiful women than just your wife, but there, you only have one wife, one person with which or right. with whom you have that kind of relationship. And I'm committed that to that yeah. for a lot of reasons. And that's beautiful to me. Like, so here's an interesting thing. Like being intimate with my wife is beautiful. Being intimate with another woman is ugly. Both of them would look the same, feel the same, but there's like a moral, moral quality about it because of the commitments I've made to my wife, Natalie. And because of what I believe, like my own worldview toward sexual ethics and stuff like that, um, 
within me is a desire for evil but there's a deeper desire for the good the true the beautiful and some of those might be some of those standards are hard to articulate objectively you know um whether by a naturalistic basics basis or some other basis um but anyways what i see in dorian is it it seems like he has a deep desire for purity of soul but there is something within his soul that is pulling him toward impurity if that makes sense sure, sure. you know and, and i think that's true like we're all hypocrites like we all believe certain things and value certain things and then totally act on the opposite at times yeah like yeah and i just think with the context of this whole book and this conversation lust sexuality beauty desire that is just so relevant and i'm just remembering uh, the words of jesus in his sermon on the mount he said you've heard it said he's referring back to the ten commandments you've heard it said do not commit adultery but i say to you that anyone who even looks upon a person with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart and that's that's like that's hard to come to grips with for a religious person as i am um <laughs> A spiritual jesus following person like that i'm an adulterer at heart if i have lusted after women that are not that that's not my wife so within me is simultaneously faithfulness to my wife as i have remained sexually pure physically but in my heart in my soul i have not i have i have betrayed that promise of faithfulness because i am an adulterer at heart anyways <laughs> there's a lot here it's hard to yeah. it's it's hard to present this information i mean it's easy to give a summary of a book but <laughs> what i'm trying to do is i'm trying to i'm trying to talk about some of the philosophy and some of almost the theology that's those questions that are being raised throughout the book in what and what's happening you know because i think everything's a metaphor for something this isn't this isn't just a you know a fantasy book about this painting oscar wilde is trying to what I think is happening in this book is I think Oscar Wilde is struggling. I think through this book, he is expressing an inner struggle. Like I believe Oscar Wilde is Basil Hallward. I believe he is Henry Watson. I believe like those pola uh, polarities of character and opinion and belief exist within the man. And I think we see that in Dorian Gray, if that makes sense. So Dorian Gray is a an antitype of a prototypical Basil and a prototypical Lord Henry. Like they're both characters. So here's a weird thing too. You might you might put it this way, and this might be blasphemous, so I need to be careful. <laughs> but you might say like. there is like spiritual good in me if you might call it that but there is spiritual darkness like almost there is like god within me and there is like satan within me like yeah. they're both there Taoism, right and they both have to exist maybe i mean that's kind of the Taoist idea 
the darkness and light, the good yeah. and the evil. Some of those ideas are being expressed in this. And honestly, I wish, I wish I had more time and I wish I have given more time to, uh, give more thought to this book. But, um, yeah, a lot of this gives allusions to things that I believe about human nature, which is that we're not all good. We're not all evil. We're a mixture of both. And you can't just say like that guy is totally wicked or that guy is just totally good. Like it's not true. I sure. think so. Anyways, it raises a lot of questions about, or it, it points to a lot of things that I, at least with my worldview believe about human nature and existence and things of that nature. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm going to dive a little bit into some more personal aspects of mm -hmm. um, you and me. Um, and if there's anything that comes up that you're like, I didn't, I didn't like that or I'm not comfortable with that. Just let me know and I'll, I'll make sure to stitch it up a little bit. Okay. Um, so, you and I, I mean, we're aware of this. The people at home aren't aware of this. Uh, aware of this. Um, you and I have a little bit of a different worldview, right? Mm -hmm. um, you are a, a religious person, a, a, a believing person, and I am not that so much, right? And in a lot of our conversations, a lot of the, a lot of the reason that you and I have connected is by talking about our different opinions mm -hmm. and finding some common ground in between those th or, or in that space where neither of us reside. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, sure. and so w when I'm kind of thinking, you know, you're talking about how like each person can find a bit of Basil and a little bit of, um, Lord Henry within mm -hmm. them. And maybe Dorian is kind of the, that person upon whom we're supposed to project ourselves or, or put ourselves in, in that situation and see, uh, a bit of ourselves in that story. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I can't help but think that maybe you and I kind of represents, represent two different sides of that coin with Basil and Lord Henry, right? You know what? That would be a really simple, easy, cookie-cutter way to explain it, and I totally don't think it's correct. Really? I totally don't think it's correct. <laughs> I think the point, I think what Dorian shows us is that I am just as ugly a man as you are. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry, I'm not trying to like point at you, but... Oh, he, he absolutely means But physically. it's like you and I... <laughs> <laughs> when, when, when I look in the mirror, I see something very different than when you look in the mirror. <laughs> no, oh my goodness, no. What I'm saying is I am Lord Henry. You are Lord Henry. Mm -hmm. I am Basil Hallward. You are Basil Hallward in some ways. Okay. In some ways. And it's not, I'm just saying, <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. It would be simple. It would be really simple yeah. for, for uh, a religious person to say there are the haves and the have nots. There are the ins and the outs. There are the righteous people and the unrighteous people. There are the redeemed and the unredeemed and black and white, black and white, black and white. What's different about Christianity is that what you really don't find in the Bible is, and this is my worldview, the Bible doesn't talk about good people and bad people. It talks about bad people and Jesus. And so <laughs> if there's okay. a scale of Hitler to Jesus Christ, 
where do I fall along that line with you? I would say that both of us are almost hugging Hitler. Okay. Okay. Honestly, compared to a holy God. I mean, if you look at the Ten Commandments, like, yeah, are you if if that is if that is God's measure of like, are you a good person? I have broken every one, and I continue to break every one. I am a liar. I am a thief. I am an adulterer at heart. Like, I don't measure up. So what makes me measure up is someone who has measured up, paid my fine in my place. You know, I'm talking about the atonement, Jesus. Anyways, but but I consider myself a redeemed very loved bad person does that make sense yeah i i think it does i i guess the the place where i still have that question you know when i said earlier that like you and i represent two sides of one coin is you say like, you know, when you want to measure our goodness, your your inherent goodness, my inherent goodness, we compare ourselves on a spectrum that ranges from Jesus to Hitler, right? Mm-hmm. And you said like, you and I are going to end up really close to Hitler. Mm-hmm. Um, I might agree with that if we were using that scale, but I think that's because we're inclu- like the top end of our spectrum is an outlier and the bottom end of our spectrum is a person like you and me. And I don't mean to say that all people are very similar to to Hitler, but that Hitler was a normal man mm-hmm. as you and me are normal men. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Jesus would be essentially God, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, my, I mm-hmm. mean, if, if my spectrum, and what I'm getting at is that your ideal, like uh, Basil, is about like an objective goodness, mm-hmm. that there's like an ultimate beauty that's undeniable. Mm-hmm. And I feel much closer idealistically to Lord Henry, where I'm like, you know, maybe I'm not going to be that objective beauty or nobody can obtain that objective beauty. And so it's subjective, right? Okay. So I think, I think you're right. And, and here's, here's, maybe this will clarify a little bit. Yeah. So we're talking about a horizontal plane where, (laughs) where Jesus is on one side, Hitler is on another side. Yeah. And how you're viewing that is this way horizontally okay how i'm viewing it is this way vertically y-axis okay (laughs) right so maybe because of my worldview i'm viewing things more on a y-axis where i'm not i'm not comparing myself to other people to tell me how good i am i'm comparing myself to an objective standard of good an objective standard of fill in the blank to tell me how i measure up does that make sense? But yeah. but you're measuring, valuing morals and, and things of that nature on an x-axis where maybe maybe, okay. I'm I'm here's the characterization. You. Where you're Lord Henry Watton and you're thinking, you know, maybe Lord Henry would say, Well, I'm not doing anybody harm by all my stuff. And so I'm actually a good person. Like, don't bother, you don't need to know about my secret sins, as you will, quote unquote. By the way, um, you know, who's to say that there is such a thing as sin? Maybe that's what Lord Henry would say. Does that make sense, kind of? Oh, yeah, I, I, okay. I believe that Lord Henry would say that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
I think so. Here's here's what we can say, and and I'm willing to say that maybe you and I don't really represent two sides or two different sides of a coin, as well as maybe it's like you said, it's a very simple thing to say, but maybe mm-hmm. not necessarily true. Mm-hmm. Here's what I will say: mm-hmm. I think that you and I both have a, a potential for good and a potential for bad for mm-hmm. bad within us, mm-hmm. and there's a constant struggle between the things that we believe, even individually. Like you may believe something different from me. Um, but we both strive for it, mm-hmm. and I think we both probably fail to meet our ideals, even if those ideals are distinct. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah and um, and wondering, you know, different different philosophers and people that we listen to, um, or we have listened to in the past, would bring up, you know, we were both born in America at this certain time period, and so we follow certain social norms that are acceptable now and here. But if we had both been born in 1930, 1940 Germany, who is to say that we would not be swayed by that culture and that spirit of the times and we would fall right in line with those other Nazis, right? Sure. And so that's where I feel like it is a little bit of a fair a fair uh, assessment to say, you know, we would maybe be close to Hitler because I think we both recognize that within us is the potential for great evil and destruction. And if we doubt that, if we don't believe that, if we're always just blame shifting, maybe that's the first pointer that we've been deceived, you know, like that our own hearts have deceived us into thinking, oh, no, 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 you're not like them. You're, you're a good person. Oh, no, 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 no. You could never do something like that because, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's like, I, I'm not willing to say that. I'm trying to be really, I'm trying to really discern my heart. And so I have, I have hurt people before. Yeah. Who's to say I wouldn't hurt them physically because I have hurt people emotionally. I'm, I'm hesitant to say that I would never say that because I've said it, you know, yeah. I, I, I have thought before like, oh, I'm not as bad as, I'm not, it's okay that I did such and such thing because somebody such and such person did such and such worse thing right mm. um and that would not be an efficient way of measuring my own worth or goodness mm-hmm. i really should strive for the best potential that i have mm-hmm. i'd agree with you there okay well dylan let's take a quick break okay. and when we come back i'll ask you a little bit more because i mean there's a there's a ton going on in this book so mm-hmm. let's do that real quick okay So that was a lot of fun talking about whether or not you and I represent two different sides of this coin of, I guess, like morality or moral objectivity, philosophical views. Um, and I mean, I'm on board, like not, not everything has to be dichotomous. You don't have to be good and I don't have to be bad, but we can both be like discreet points on a multi-dimensional like spectrum of existence right we are way too complex of creatures to be just one thing or the other it's it's way too reductionistic to just um i think just label you know that guy's good that guy's bad that that doesn't work out when you start really thinking about it too deeply very shallow and it seems like a common it seems like a fairly common 
common thing to see nowadays in, for example, the news, uh, in politics, and in people talking about different topics that are important to them, um, the compulsion to like vilify somebody who disagrees with you is very strong. And I think that probably stems from like a place of insecurity where it's something that matters a lot to you and you don't want to be wrong. Mm -hmm. And even if somebody has like a good argument, you would rather, I'd rather just not, you know, putting myself in like that situation, I'd rather just not deal with your really good argument because I care a lot about this. But Mm. the real value is in getting to the truth of the matter, Mm -hmm. right? And so it could be that you're right. And like, it would be best if you could work through it and and show it. And if you're wrong, um, that'll hurt. But at the end of the day, it'll be better for you. I mean, Mm -hmm. at least that's that's how I view it. I, I think I think I would caution our listeners toward two things. And this is kind of what I'm I guess arguing for today, if if that's what I'm doing here. The first thing is that I think it is very easy for us to be critical. Very easy. It is very easy to sit behind a computer with a blog and to talk about all the things that are wrong in the world, all the things that are wrong with him, her, them, whatever. So that's the first thing is we have to be, we have to recognize that we have a great uh, propensity for recognizing all the flaws in everything. We're all little reformers, okay? The second thing is though, is that we are very slow, I think, to criticize ourselves. Like we have a, we have a predisposition toward I'm right. I am on the right side of things. I have the right motivation for things. And, and I believe this to be true, Keikoa. Um, so what I'm saying is we should be able to vilify ourselves when appropriate as we are vilifying everyone else in the social sphere. Jeremiah 17, verse nine, we're going back to the Bible. I believe this to be true. It says, the human heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Deceitfully wicked. Who can understand it? Now you may not agree with, uh, you know, all of the claims of the Bible, but I think there is something to be said for at least a kernel of truth in that statement that there is a deceitfulness about the human heart. Yeah. And and we are deceitful creatures because we can see what no one else can see on the inside, but we do not show that, of course. We right. want to show the best. We want to show the highlight reel on social media and we want to put forth the very best of who we think we are. And sometimes we feel like a fraud because we are. Yeah. I That actually reminds me of what you were talking about before uh, from um, Dorian's kind of experience with his painting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he starts to see like a wicked smirk that bothers him. Mm-hmm. And his his route, I guess, of, of dealing with that... Um, with that conflict that he starts to feel is to hide it in mm-hmm. the attic mm-hmm. to keep it out of sight. And I can't help but see the very clear parallel with, with what we often do in real life when we start to see something that we dislike about ourselves to overcompensate for it, to try to cover up the bad parts 
or the parts about ourselves that maybe we're embarrassed of or ashamed of and cover them up with other things that make us feel better, um, even possibly as a way, as a means of tricking ourselves into thinking that everything's okay when really on the inside, we know that there's something that's hurting us mm. about ourselves that we're not being honest about, not being authentic about. Mm. That is so good. That is such a great point. And I think that will segue us very nicely into the next part of the story, which is kind of after the middle of the book where we, we see all of Dorian's, you know, escapades and mm-hmm. all of that kind of descent into hell. If you, if you think about it in terms of, uh, you know, Dante's Inferno. Just, <laughs> I was about I mean, to say, I thought it was Dorian, not Dante. <laughs> yeah, right. No, I mean, he. there is a descent and things are getting worse for him. Things are getting darker and darker, more bleak in the story. And the painting is getting uglier and uglier. And at a certain point, Dorian's talking to Basil, who created the portrait. And he says this to Basil. He says, would you like to see inside my soul? And he takes Basil up into the upper room and shows him the painting. And what happens is Basil is completely horrified and he begs him to repent. And tears begin to well up in Dorian's eyes. But what happens is that a darkness comes over him. So he has been totally overcome by this darkness like his sin has been eating him alive and there's like no turning back at this point this darkness comes over him even with tears in his eyes and he kills basil in a fit of rage so you're starting to see this trail of bodies stacking stacking up because uh his girlfriend sybil vane kills herself because he's an abusive horrible lover basil who like loved him he kills in a fit of rage it's almost you know it's maniac, it, it, maniacal, or I don't even know how you'd say it. He's a, he's he's having like an episode, a yeah. manic break or something like that, and he just kills him. So he killed Basil because Basil told him to repent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and and so he's confronted. So so sorry. Here, I feel like that reaction wasn't wasn't appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, that's crazy. <laughs> it is crazy but when i said okay i mean like okay i understand yeah. like the the plot but yeah like, to give an appropriate response mm-hmm. that's not okay yeah and i i don't know it's an interesting little um plot point the picture is that dorian has been like wandering into a very dark forest or something like in all of this sinfulness like getting lost and lost in the darkness like in this sea of sin if you will and then it's like the light returns which he used to walk in the light he used to be this beautiful innocent perfect seemingly person but when the light hits him again after he's been walking in the darkness Mm -hmm. here's what i think happens and why he doesn't love it because the light is exposing him right he's been hiding he's been hiding and then his sin is exposed by this painting and then this light that he used to love is now something that is it's it's exposing him right it's not something he loves the warmth of wants to walk in because he loves the light it's like he loves the darkness now and now the light it's not just a reminder of how bad you are but it it exposes him he can't hide anymore when the light's shining on him and basil here is acting as a kind of uh light as a kind of it's like the clouds part mm-hmm. over this darkness and the light of the truth 
of God himself mm -hmm. is shining on Dorian and he doesn't, he wants to escape that light. He wants to go right back into the darkness and hide. And so he kills him almost as if he would have killed goodness itself if he had the chance. But Basil mm. is, Basil, because he realizes how far he is from it. So instead of like turning back and trying to, you know, clean up his life, he's accepted his state in the dark and he just kills the good. It's like a sunk cost. God is dead. Of. Oh. Friedrich Nietzsche. And I'm not saying that it's just, it's, it's not, this is not just an allegory for him killing God, but it is killing, it seems that he is killing this ideal goodness, truth, and beauty because he's realized how far he is from it. And maybe that he doesn't want to climb that mountain back to get there, if that makes sense. Hmm. I, so I have a, like a ton of thoughts going on, right? Because the first thing I think of when you talk about uh, Dorian kind of seeing he's come all this way and realizes how ugly it is, mm -hmm. right? Um, the first thing that I kind of he's thought never is, sorry he's never deceived so much to know that what he is doing is not ugly. That's the sure. truth. He sees yeah. the painting. He sees the ugliness. So he still does have a conscience yeah. about this. Go ahead. And, and it does seem like he like he notices that all along the path. At least that's from what you've you you've told me. Like he's he's aware that he doesn't like this new thing that he's becoming little by little. Uh, but when he finally kind of realizes the extent of the of the ugliness, let's say, and and uh, Basil comes and kind of reveals that to him, sounds like his reaction is like, well, it's it's a lost cause now. It's I'm you know I've, I'm too far now to be, I guess, redeemed, right? That's that's uh, yes. I think the cursory reading of the text that is the first thing that kind of that's the idea. I think that is being communicated. There yeah. might be more there, um, but. Yes, I think that that is correct. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's kind of the first thing. And like, I mean, so I, I do have another thing I, I, I want to mention. But mm -hmm. before I say that, I just want to um, maybe ask you, like, have you ever been to a place of desperation like that? And, and share whatever you're comfortable with, of course, mm -hmm. but a place where you kind of maybe woke up and saw the light and said, like, oh, I... I really don't like that about myself. And mm -hmm. it was a long road that got me here and, and the hike back up mm -hmm. would probably suck. Yeah. Um, this is, yeah, this is a really pertinent question. And I think as a man who grew up going to church, who was taught these things are right. These things are wrong. Here are the ideals. Here are the standards. Follow the Lord. But being a human being with the potential for great evil, here is where, and I'll just be really honest um, about my own struggles in my life, but when I got into middle school, I started looking at pornography. Okay. And I uh, was actually horrified by it when I first came across it, like totally disgusted. And then I was really curious about it. Like something within me really wanted to look at that. And I started looking at pornography regularly and um, it became a darkness that I loved but knew was eating my soul away. 
and it, it was eating me away because it started out as something that I was using to make me pleasured to, that I liked. But after a while, it started to feel like something that was using me. It started to feel like something that I was captive to. And I was always thinking about pornography, having dreams about pornography. Like I could not escape its grasp on my mind. And it got to, and so I looked at pornography in middle school, in high school, like always trying to stop, never could. Then in college, finally, and this is part of why I think that God exists and is uh, at work in my life because I was able as a 18 year old man to break free from pornography indefinitely. Like I haven't gone back to it ever. And I don't know any, like I don't know any other man who can say that. Like that's, it's an amazing thing. But, but at that place, I was so discouraged, uh, burdened by that and felt so enslaved to it that there were some times where I just didn't want to fight it. I just wanted to give in because it's just so much easier to give in. It's so hard to fight this, like tears, sweating, like grinding my teeth at night because I am so stressed out because this is like a stranglehold on my soul. <laughs> and that might sound like really extreme, but this is really how I have felt about this issue in my life. And it's still with me because I still have to choose every day when I'm alone at my house with my laptop or my phone, like not to go there because I have the opportunity to go right back into that. I think what would happen is if I went back into that world for any amount of time, it would become like a virus that has entered me once again and has taken over and organs are failing and everything is just like pulling me downward. And it's very hard. It's an, it's like an addiction. It's hard to, it's really hard to get out of that pit once you've started digging and just going back to it is like digging it further and further. And it's like, there's no telling if you keep doing that, you might be stuck forever. It's like a heroin addict, you know? Um, anyways, I don't want to get too much into like the science and stuff of it. And we don't need to keep talking about this, but yes, thank you. Um, I, I do personally relate to this in that. And even at this time, you know, leading worship in my church and being public and trying to, you know, be a proclaimer of the hope that is in me as a follower of Jesus. Like it makes me feel like such a hypocrite. It made me feel so unworthy of this calling. It made me feel so fake, you know, yeah. fraudulent. Like, how can I even say that I love Jesus when all of my love is for filth? Anyways, yes. And yeah, part of my story is that I was freed from that by the grace of God. And, um, but it's still something to this day that I don't consider myself a victor in until it's all said and done because it's still something I have to be cognizant and aware of. And you bet that I have failed mentally, although I haven't failed with my eyeballs, perhaps, you know, sure. with a screen. And so, you know, I don't claim victory as my own. I thank God. And I don't, I don't want to make defeat anymore define like who I am. And that's what, is really sad about this with Dorian 
is that he seems unable to even find a path to turn around. And he begins, it's like he hates the light. Yeah. He hates Basil, his friend. He kills him. And yeah, it's it seems to be like a fit of rage. It doesn't really make logical sense. But you know what? A lot of the crap we do doesn't make logical sense. It just feels right at the time, you know? Yeah. And so there is a, such a deceitfulness about all of this stuff that's happening, such a confusion and wrestling of heart. And it's like, I think Dorian has no idea who he even is. You know, it's it's really a fascinating passage in the book. Yeah. I mean, that's something that, that I can definitely relate to. And and by mm-hmm. the way, thank you so much for for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think that your experience is um, one that only you know. I think that's probably a fairly common experience that that people go through yeah um but it's one that people go through alone very frequently and so Mm. you feel like you're the only one yeah um because you have this painting hidden up in your attic Mm. and you don't want people to see it yeah um so thank you very much yeah um there is a passage in first john that talks about if we walk in the light as he is in the light we will have fellowship with one another and the idea is that uh, yeah, we're all dealing with a lot of these similar things. And I think that the path to freedom is by confession and uh, getting together with people who are just like you and like revealing our paintings to each other, basically. Take a look inside my soul. And then like, I think bearing, I think that that's the first step. Okay, so if I'm cheating on my wife, I feel like the first path to getting over that is probably telling my wife. Sure. Which is the one thing I don't want to do. But I have to bear the picture to my wife yeah. so she can see all so that I can. And I think when someone else sees it, it, it helps us understand truly how hideous that is. But I think if we just keep that a secret and we say one day I'll turn, you know, turn around, I don't think that will ever happen. You know, anyways, I don't know, just a thought. But You, you know what's funny about this idea of this painting, right? Hmm. Is that as I sit here kind of thinking about this concept that is being presented um, by Oscar Wilde, I take the being, the person, Dorian Gray, to be real. Mm-hmm. I also take the painting to be real. Mm-hmm. And then I take this, you know, story that Oscar Wilde is is presenting and I project myself onto it. So I project myself, a real person, onto Dorian Gray. Mm-hmm. And I I also project something onto that painting. Mm-hmm. And so in my mind, I make both the person and the painting real, right? Mm-hmm. The, the thought that I have here is that if the painting represents maybe your self image or it represents like your character or it represents something kind of abstract, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a secret that I have, for example, in, in your situation in, or in your story, you, you know, like I have to show the painting to my wife in order to like shine a light on it and move, move on from it. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a separation between Dorian Gray, the man and the picture of Dorian Gray. Hmm. so the the whatever it is whatever this ugly thing is 
that you're hiding in your attic, whatever ugly thing I'm hiding in my attic, yes, it's real in a conceptual level because it's something real that I carry with me, something that I'm ashamed of, that I spend a lot of time hiding. Mm-hmm. But I am not synonymous with the picture of Keikoa. You are not synonymous with your picture of Dylan. In spite of the fact that there are ugly pictures of Dylan, Dylan is beautiful. The real Dylan. Yeah, that's an, uh, that's an interesting... Uh, yeah, that's an important thing. That, um, that's what I want. <laughs> that's what I want the book to say. You know, That's what I want the reality to be. That may not be the case. Yeah. Uh, but that's what I'm thinking as I'm kind of thinking about you, you know, sharing your picture and me sharing my picture. I mm-hmm. don't want that picture to be me. Well, yeah, it erases. <laughs> I think the truth is in our conversation, we're going to raise a lot more questions than answer answers or sorry, answer questions. And wait, we're going to raise a lot more questions than answer questions. Oh, we're going to raise a lot more questions than we will answer questions. That's right. Gotcha. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. But one thing, a question that this raises is, should we define ourselves? Should our identity be found in? Should we say, I am blank because of our failures? Like, should we define ourselves by the things we've done wrong? Should we define ourselves by the things we've done right? Should we define ourselves by our occupation? Like, where does our identity lie? For Dorian, here's an interesting question. Does his identity lie in his wickedness of heart, all his record of wrongs? Or does his identity lie in this idealistic, perfect image that he's trying to keep up? That's an interesting question. Is he more distraught over his sin? Or is he more distraught over how hard it is to keep up this perfect image? Yeah. Here's an interesting question or realization is that I think that if we are struggling with something that we would call filthy, wretched, sinful, as it were, I think we have to hate it. We have to really hate it to get over it, to get through it, to, to be done with that sin, to find victory over it. I think we truly have to come to a place where we understand and recognize it's evil. Like we, it's disgusting to us. It's vile. It's defigured, deformed. Ugh, I don't want any of that. Instead of just, well, it makes me feel like a good person when I don't go there. You know what I mean? Like, sure. I don't want to just keep up a good image. I don't want to just feel like a good person. I want to actually love the good. I think that the path forward out of the darkness is loving the light and all that the light brings, whatever that is. Yeah. So instead of instead of running from something, you're running to something. Yes. Yeah. It's a, a affirmative or, or a positive yes. thought and action. Yes. And so to stop committing adultery, I want to be overwhelmed i want to be washed over with love for my wife Mm -hmm. with a special uh unshared love right for my wife and and i want i want to love the beauty of our intimacy together and yeah it's like very spiritual almost right right you don't even have to talk about god but it's like a spiritual yeah I think you said I think you said it better than I did. <laughs> sure, I mean, uh, you know, in in your case, um, 
it, I think it would make sense. It's it's not that I don't want to be a sinner. It's that I want to be a Christian or I want to be redeemed or, you know, however you, you would say it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think... I think that if you really love the good, if you really love truth, if you really love beauty, I think you will find yourself falling into those categories in in real life, probably unwittingly, without even thinking about it. You'll look back on your life, look back on the past day, like, and realize that you had made right choices, but it wasn't like a struggle in the moment. You just found yourself there because you just walk in that. You just love that. Does that make sense? I think so. As opposed to like every decision between right and wrong is so just like painstaking because I actually want to do wrong. I hate doing the right yeah. thing. I know I'm supposed to, but I don't want to. That's the difference. I want to replace that evil desire with a good, beautiful desire. It's it's instead of doing, you want to be. Yes. It's it's not it's not yeah. about it's not about doing the right thing, but it's about being the right person. Yeah, I want my desires yeah. to be changed. I don't want to be the same me. I don't want to just find victory but still have this heart that longs for like disgusting things. I want to have a desire change i want to have a heart change i want to have some open heart surgery i want a new heart i want like new desires i want i want to be feeding on the good and and love it you know know that i am feasting when i am when i am taking in the good but that i am starving when i am taking in evil you know yeah yeah i think a lot of uh like people on the paleo diet feel the same way (laughs) (laughs) starving (laughs) Oh, no. <laughs> I just meant like, you know, not eating refined sugars or, oh or whatever, right? Starving by refined sugars, but eating a lot of protein, That was baby. That was such <laughs> an important insertion of just a little levity, because this conversation <laughs> so far is super heavy, and I feel like we just need to bring it down for our listeners a little bit. Yeah, that's great. You know, a little insight into our relationship. That's mm-hmm. how it feels a lot. We spend you know, quite a bit of time talking about things that are very emotional or personal Mm -hmm. and we'll break it up with like one joke and we'll be like, ha ha ha. Okay. But really? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And we do need to get back to the story. So, uh, and actually, I mean, we can, we can work around this as much as we want, um, go on off on some other tangents, but, uh, we're getting toward the end of the story here. Yeah. And it's going to be heavy. So, uh, if you got any jokes, (laughs) pull them out now because it's about to get heavy. Well, um, okay, so we'll take a break real quick, and uh, either you or I will think of a joke to say when we get back. Sounds good. So we're back, and we spent a good five minutes talking about a joke that we could tell, and it just neither one of us is looted our grasp yeah like so many things in life i i suppose we're just not that funny but mm-hmm. we do have this interesting book that we were talking well I, we've mostly been talking around the book it seems like <laughs> that's right um you've asked me very specific questions that i have given very ambiguous answers to i think no and and isn't that the value of a book though how mm. how you take the very specific story and apply it to as many people who come from different backgrounds as possible sure um okay so 
let's let's get back on the book then. Mm-hmm. So I have now that uh, Dorian Gray has killed Basil in a fit of rage. Mm-hmm. What what happens next? Because now we're left with Dorian and Lord Henry. That doesn't seem like a good pairing. <laughs> Lord Henry's kind of out of the picture by now, but okay. um, the point is, you know, yeah, Dorian has been, uh, to use Dante's language, he has been, you know, descending into hell, and he's just plummeting himself further and further into the darkness. But at the end of the story, Dorian's guilt is tormenting him to the point that he has decided, I need to destroy this painting. So it's interesting, is he doing away with the evidence? You know, <laughs> So he's going to destroy the painting. He doesn't want to see this anymore. Um, he's going to kill and do away with all the ugliness that he's been, that he's the one who's been committing. <laughs> that, that he is, yeah. Yeah. And so um, he takes a knife. It's actually the same knife he had used to kill Basil. And he comes down on this wicked, disfigured creature that has emerged. And at the end of the story, there's a crash that's heard. And his servants walk into his room to discover to discover a beautiful, unharmed portrait and an old, disfigured, ugly man lying on the ground with a knife in his heart. I'm so mad right now. <laughs> so I earlier when we were talking, there was a part of me that thought like maybe maybe the painting is not really changing, but he's kind of projecting mm-hmm. his own uh, insecurities or whatever onto the painting. But then you were telling me like Basil showed up and mm-hmm. saw the painting and saw that the painting was ugly. And I was like, oh, okay, it must be like a magic painting then. Yeah. I'm so mad that the painting is still beautiful. Well, I mean, that's the, that's the, I don't know. I don't know if this is, supernatural meaning that the painting actually took on these i think i think it did i don't think there's a naturalistic explanation for these things okay but we do know that at the end of the story the one who is actually guilty finds justice and he takes his own life the, it's like so yeah there is there is first an imputation a transfer of the guilt onto the painting but then at the end it's like he actually gets what was coming to him, kind of. But it's not in the form of divine justice or anything. He kills himself, which is a really interesting end to this story because there's a such a finality and bleakness about it. And it, I think when I think about it, it actually raises existential questions you know, like for Dorian, there is no redemption, i.e. there is no God. So it's just death for him. For Dorian, there is no end to the chase of satisfaction I think because he is pursuing all these pleasures that he enjoys yet feeling tormented by the guilt in his conscience of doing those very things. And he's just chasing them. And it's like, 
while they're providing some kind of momentary satisfaction, I think what would be ultimately gratifying for Dorian is to have a clear conscience, which he doesn't seem to be able to attain or even have a category in his thinking that that's even possible. Like, so it's not just the death that makes this all so bleak at the end. At the end of the story, the bleakness is the futility of this pursuit, the flu the futility of hedonism, if you will, at least if you have a conscience. But then also it raises questions like, is there, is, is redemption possible even for someone who is so far gone? From whom will that redemption come? Can I just redeem myself? Can I pull myself out of this pit? Is there a God? I think that these were all questions that Oscar Wilde was wrestling with when he wrote this book. I think as the artist he was, uh, he was tormented by certain questions like where true satisfaction lies, uh, who he is, wh where his identity lies, and maybe is there a real beauty to be found? Is there something good? and beautiful worth chasing in this life that I can be more attracted to than sin, quote unquote, a beauty out there that I can have and attain and love. And that will give me satisfaction. Truly I'm kind of working through this mentally right now. Um, <laughs> live, live on air. Right. Yeah. But yeah, it raises a lot of questions at the end. And if anything, it is very interesting, uh, kind of bleak, kind of dark. But I really like this story because there's just so much of myself reflected in, I think, this man, Dorian, who longs for beauty, it seems, yeah, but just can't attain it because he's not a beautiful man, like on the inside. Right. And it's interesting as we're recording this, we're sitting in my office where all around us are beautiful paintings that I've acquired over the years because I love beauty. Like I love beautiful things, but here's something that's interesting is that truly beautiful things I think the contrast of that exposes me for how not like those things I am, if that makes sense. Like when I see a real beautiful person or I see a real, okay, for this, this, this is a great, a little analogy. You're okay. a middle school girl. And I'm using that just because middle school girls, I mean, middle school boys care about their appearance, but at least stereotypically, middle school girls care a lot about their appearance. And if there's a really beautiful girl in the school, that beautiful girl is going to make the other girl feel really ugly compared to her. Okay. And there's an analogy for this idea that I love beautiful things. I love these works of art that are all around us in this room. For example, there's this painting behind you, uh, kind of this idyllic scene of... Well, there's all these colors. It's it's kind of almost dreamy, dreamlike. And there's this couple walking on this path and it's really peaceful. And there's these beautiful trees growing up all around them. And 
it's something that I want in my life. Like I want to see growth and fruitfulness. I want to be walking with my wife through this life in a, you know, walking in a winter wonderland, you know, like a beautiful, <laughs> a I, I, want, I want the scene, I want the stage of my life to be beautiful, you know, but the painting exposes that life isn't like that. Right. Life is a lot more messy. Like my life looks more like the ground they're walking on than all of the uh, gorgeous scenery around them. And so I don't even remember if there was an original question, but um, yeah, the story, I guess, just raises a lot of questions about a longing we have for beauty and maybe our inability to attain it and where we would look to find it if it's even there. I think that's really beautiful. The admission that life isn't all beauty and if it isn't all beauty, then where do we look to mm -hmm. find it, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's a part of me that wonders in the places where life doesn't seem to be beautiful, is that in itself beautiful? That's an interesting question. Uh, I sometimes think about this looking at people's social, uh, social media posts. Often you'll see people standing in front of something really ugly because that's a perfect backdrop for a picture, <laughs> right? Like we're going to stand next to the grimiest, gross wall. Oh, you're in... talking about the gum wall in Seattle. Sure, I hate it. Like it's disgusting. <laughs> but but why, like why, why are we so attracted to broken things? Why aren't we so attracted to grimy, gross things? We even want to stand in front of it for a picture. I don't know. Think about this. Is it because in contrast, it makes us look beautiful? Is it because we relate with the ugly? Is it for some other reason, right? Like this is all part of the conversation. But I think we all are chasing beauty in the end. I'm... I I, d I agree. I was going to say I don't disagree and then it didn't come out, but um, I, I agree. I actually think that the gum wall presents us the inverse of the question that I asked, right? Mm -hmm. So I asked, are there ugly things that because of their ugliness are inherently beautiful? I think the gum wall is a better example of something that is objectively beautiful like with the bright colors and uh, when you when you take a step back and you can't see what it is the the colors are vibrant and they draw mm -hmm. you in and they if you put your your iPhone in portrait mode where it blurs the whole background then you kind of stand out among like these pretty colors and it's and it's beautiful but when you take a moment to think about what it took to make that beauty you realize this is disgusting yeah. right it's not beautiful and that's kind of you know, the opposite. And hmm. um, so what you're saying <laughs> is possibly like a tapestry. We uh, messed up ugly um, pieces of cloth all woven together. When you stand back from it, maybe it does show something beautiful. 
Is that what you're saying? You know, if, if you squint a little bit, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but that assumes that there's someone on the outside taking a peek at all this. Ooh. So we have to, so maybe we have to get outside of ourselves a little bit, think a little bit more cosmically, think a little bit less through our eyes. Maybe we need some philosophy. Heck, maybe we need some theology. I don't know. Dorian kills himself. So obviously, this is a huge problem for him, his moral ugliness. So what do we do with this? It, it seems to me, and I'm just presenting something for consideration here. Mm -hmm. It seems to me like Dorian was very focused on something insignificant, um, spending too much time thinking about this painting when the real problem the whole time was himself, right? If he, if he wakes up dead one morning and... Yeah, so was, was Dorian really tortured because he wasn't living up to the ideal? If, if the one result, one possible interpretation of the end of this book is that the painting was always beautiful and Dorian killed himself for being ugly, right? Mm -hmm. In that case, it was Dorian um, who was his own worst enemy, right? Mm -hmm. If we consider the situation where the painting was what got ugly and Dorian was actually beautiful, Dorian was never his own worst enemy, but his perception of himself uh, led to him, led to his his demise, where the power was always within himself to be beautiful. In fact, he was beautiful objectively, but he didn't recognize that and failed to achieve what what he could have. Mm -hmm. um, where in in the other scenario where he's the ugly one, he was essentially always running from the ugly that he was becoming. The truth about himself that once again, even though he's beautiful or even though he's ugly, doesn't mean he's not beautiful. Like even though he got old and had, you know, done maybe things that he's not proud of that he wanted to forget that didn't eliminate his value as a person, mm -hmm. but it ate at him so bad that he projected this image of himself on this painting to the point where one day he thought it wasn't worth it to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think the author leaves both of those interpretations open because of Basil Hallward and Lord Henry Wotton, who feature so prominently at the outset of this book and kind of, they have kind of these philosophical conversations, which we, we don't really have time to get into, but I think that both of their philosophical uh, worldviews, which are exposed, show that, yeah, both of those inter interpretations could be possible depending kind of on what what worldview you have. If you're like Basil Hallward, you believe that, you know, Dorian really is really messed up. And he killed himself because he was um, aware of how ugly he was on the inside and he just couldn't bear with it anymore. And he didn't find a path of redemption or beautification, you know, of that, of those deformities of heart. But if you view this 
story kind of through the lens of a uh, Lord Henry, you'd say, well, what held Dorian captive was his negative thoughts, which weren't necessarily true because what is truth, right? Yeah. Which it, that's just, it's kind of like there's a modernist interpretation and a postmodern interpretation. Sure. There's a uh, ideal, uh, idyllic and a realistic. There's, yeah, I, I think that that is uh, viable. Um, where I personally take this, though, as we've kind of been talking about, is um, I think I view it kind of through the the Basil Hallward lens. Right. I, I really do think that Dorian Gray was tortured by his by his guilt, was tortured with a conscience which was telling him, like, this is bad. You know, this is ugly. This is filthy. And he became deformed, uh, you know, depraved. He became wretched and he, he despised himself. Um, I, and I, I think I, I take that interpretation because that is most true to my experience. And anytime I just, you know, and this is kind of the self-help angle. If someone says, oh, those are, those are just negative thoughts about yourself. Just tell yourself, you're beautiful, uh, you're awesome, you can do it, blah, 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 blah. That feels so, it feels so disingenuous and I just know it's not true of me. Like, and here's where it's important. I think we, in this culture, as we talked about before, we are so good at criticizing the world, pointing the finger always at other people. What's really hard and is not, I think, our default by nature is to say like gk chesterton i am the problem with the world i have the potential for great evil and i may be guilty of great evil but you have to have some kind of standard of good objective standard of good to even say that and so you do see this conflict of worldviews presented in this book and in these characters basil and lord henry yeah i think that you said at the beginning that the book raised questions mm -hmm. that you found valuable mm -hmm. um i think that's pretty clear yeah. that that the book raises questions yeah um and it seems like the answers are kind of left to the reader mm -hmm. to decide and it sounds like oscar wilde probably took the um in my opinion, the better route, because I don't know if, you know, 200 years later that we have much better of an answer than he would have had. Well, it's interesting. Um, I think he died in the early 1900s, so only sure. a little over 100 years okay. later. But I think what's interesting is that at the time that this was published, I think it was around 10 years before his death. So think about this. If he had a deathbed conversion to Catholicism, that means that 10 years prior to this, he may have been wrestling with these same issues. That means that he might have written this book not even knowing what he's trying to prove or right. communicate through it. I That's why I feel like this book may be reflective of, the own, of uh, his own state of soul, as it were. Like, maybe he was really torn between these ideas of am I really so messed up? Like, am I really ugly on the inside? Or 
how can I even say that? Because is there really, you know, an objective standard of ugliness and beauty? You know what I mean? Yeah. So I wonder if, if he was not struggling with these things as he wrote this and uh, doesn't really maybe leaves us to figure out the interpretation because he was left to think about both interpretations. Yeah. Yeah. There was, um, I don't remember what it was now, but you said uh, imputation. Yes. That there was a transference essentially of guilt mm-hmm. from Dorian to the painting. I'm not actually familiar with the word imputation. Yeah. Um, but the transference of guilt makes sense enough to yeah me. transfer credit so it is kind of if if dorian as a person has a record of wrongs yeah. the painting now carries that record okay it's kind so, of a crediting transfer yeah would, would this in 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 your experience would this be a word that is used for christ for example the transference of guilt to him as a redeemer yeah um second corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 says um, Jesus became sin. He who knew no sin became sin. Okay. So here's the idea is that Christ is God who became a man who lived a perfect sinless life as a second Adam. So in every way that Adam failed, Jesus succeeded where Adam represented all humanity and through his uh, sinful choices, all humanity became infected with sin. Jesus, through his perfect sinless life, active obedience before God the Father, and in his substitutionary atonement on a cross, where that sin, the sin of the world, was imputed or credited to him, he dies upon the cross as a substitute so that we wouldn't have to die because the wages of sin is death. He takes it away so that us, now through faith, can be brought into this new humanity that Jesus lived and died and rose to create. Um, And it's through imputation. And so where our unrighteousness is imputed to Christ upon the cross through faith, his righteousness, his perfect record of rights is imputed or credited to us. And what that means theologically as a Christian is that we still are really messed up like we still sin. We still are guilty before God. We we need to repent of our sin. We need to ask for forgiveness, confess our sin. But in God's eyes, he considers us righteous because of Jesus. It's called justification. In Romans right. chapter three, the whole book of Galatians is all about this idea of justification. How can man be made right in the eyes of God? Because, and when man is made right in the eyes of God, him seeing himself through God's eyes can see himself as he doesn't have to make all of those wrongs, his identity. Does that make sense? It does. So it, so I listen to what God says about me mm-hmm. and he says, I'm loved. I'm chosen. I'm adopted. I'm his own. I'm fill in the blank. You yeah. know, there's a lot of things in scripture that says that. So that's how I should view myself. Is that a car? Sounds like it. Sounds like a really car that's having a lot of problems. It sounds like somebody's spinning donuts in your parking lot. <laughs> Probably. Um, okay. Anyways, yes, imputation. Yeah, there's there's a lot of... What's interesting about this book is with this idea of Dorian's sin being imputed or transferred, credited to this painting which exposes him really. Uh, there's, yeah, there's an obvious allusion to 
um, this idea of imputation yeah. um, into Jesus, and then Jesus imputed or credited righteousness to his people. Yeah, it's an interesting point. But what what's interesting is that Dorian doesn't find a place to put his guilt. He doesn't find a place to impute his guilt away. It always sticks with him, whether it's yeah. on the painting or in his old decrepit body that has a knife in his heart at the end. And so that's what really torments him is that at the end, he doesn't know what how to do away with his guilt. Right. And he takes his own life. It Now that I'm hearing you explain, you know, this concept of imputation and, and um, more of the, the story of how, you know, uh, Christ's salvation works. I'm seeing such clear parallels between that and what's going on in the story of of Dorian Gray. I'm I'm almost convinced now that that's clearly what is meant to be expressed um, by Oscar Wilde. Um, and what's even funny is is we could actually probably like stop and record a whole new uh, episode of this podcast where we discuss the parallels between mm-hmm. the story. Um, of Dorian Gray and like the, the whole span of the biblical story mm-hmm. um, because you have this book that is essentially like made in the image of Dorian Gray. And, um, and that's like us, we are, you know, made in the image of God. And then when you get to the, the middle of, uh, of the Dorian Gray story, this image is kind of corrupted. It, it loses its beauty and becomes ugly. And mm-hmm. it's kind of like, you know, us as sinners. Mm-hmm. And then when you get to the end, you have Dorian sacrificing himself and that takes away the ugliness from the painting. And, you know, it's not a perfect analogy, but it, yeah. to me, it sounds a lot like, you know, Christ being, uh, being God and then being his own sacrifice on behalf of that, which was created in his image. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's interesting is that we talked about at the beginning of at the beginning of this podcast that uh, Oscar Wilde was not a Christian. He maybe had a deathbed conversion to Catholicism, right. but he was not a religious person. Uh, you know, in the sense we'd use that today. Um, but he was well read, and what I think is that he probably knew at least some stories of the Bible and found continuity with some of the themes and motifs in those stories with his own life, like uh, the idea of knowing what is right and rebelling against it and maybe going into hiding because of it, but then seeking some kind of redemption and freedom from it. And I think what is really clear at the end of this story is that you have a man who is burdened by his guilt, which is common to all human experience and who is unable to find uh, reprieve, uh, who is unable to find what to do with his guilt. He can't escape his guilt. He can hide from it, but at the end of the day, he has to deal with it. And what's interesting is that what we don't see in this story is Dorian doing really good to clean up his life. And then the picture starts turning, you know, smiley and all beautiful again, which would be, I think more in line with um, kind of the notion of religiosity. I don't think it's biblical, but I think religious people think that 
you know, God will just love me if I try my best to be a good person. Um, or, or like, yeah, I, I'm a messed up person, but if I just keep trying to do good, maybe I can change and become a good person. But I think Dorian comes to a correct conclusion in that he just has to, it, it just has to be killed somehow. Like, it's like he's in a courtroom standing before a judge and all of his wrongdoings are crying out against him for justice off with his head. <laughs> and he comes to the conclusion, how do I not pay this? Like, how do I not pay this fine? How do I accuse, how do I recuse myself from this place where I stand now condemned? And he can't, he looks to, he can't find anybody to look to. Like he needs a savior or some archetypal savior, right? Like he yeah. needs something to set him free from his guilt and he finds nothing, which is really interesting, you know? And I think, I no, think, I mean, nothing except himself, right? Well, he, he takes his own life. So that's right. the trade. Yeah. Like if he's like, the only thing that's going to set me free is, well, if I'm dead, then I'm not guilty anymore. Yeah. Just horrific. It's very dark. It's so bleak. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I really love it too. Um, but it does raise a question, you know, if all of us know that we're ugly inside, if if we would agree that there even is some standard that we have violated and we're guilty of something, what do we do with the guilt? Do we just hide it away and, and just not let it eat us, you know, eat at us? Like our conscience says you're guilty and we're like, nah, I'm just shh, shh, be quiet conscience. Yeah. It's kind of, it's the equivalent of hiding our picture in the upper room. Right. Um, and I don't know. I don't know how long we can do that before we maybe come to a point in our life where we have to go back into that room and take a look at that picture take a good look at ourselves in the mirror and we're not going to like what we see and we need we need to be set free from that that image of sickness and ugliness that is bearing down upon us right we right. we can't just i don't know there is some sense in this world that we can't just ignore those feelings of guilt so how do we deal with them that's a good question that <laughs> is raised, but not answered. Yeah. And I think that's probably okay. Mm. You know, so thank you so much mm -hmm. for, for being on the show and for uh, sharing, um, first of all, like, you know, this interesting book, but second of all, your perspective on it. Mm. Um, if I had had somebody else, another friend who had wanted to do this book, uh, I don't think it would have gone in the same direction that it went today. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm okay with that. I think mm -hmm. it's been, it's been a lot of fun and, you know, we can learn different things. Like, like I wanted to hear your perspective of mm -hmm. the book and I think you've had at least somewhat of a chance. <laughs> I think there's probably a lot more that we could have talked about, but I'm just, I'm, I'm really grateful for mm -hmm. it. So, um, Okay, so there are two questions that mm -hmm. I ask everybody that comes on. Um, the first one is, if you had to rate the picture of Dorian Gray, how would you rate it? 
How would Dylan rate this book? Um, I would, I would probably rate it on a scale of Hitler to Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I would rate it on a scale of uh, probably a not helpful book to an incredibly illuminating book. I would rate it somewhere between the middle point and very helpful. Um, I think it's very helpful insofar as it raises a lot of questions that I think human beings need to grapple with. I think it will illuminate and raise questions about human nature, maybe about meaning and purpose and existence and guilt and ethics and morality, things that we don't usually, you know, spend our days thinking about unless we're uh, undergrad students in uh, philosophy. <laughs> philosophy 101. Yeah. And so I would rate it somewhere between, you know, moderately helpful to extremely helpful. Um, I can't rate it as extremely helpful because it leaves too many questions unanswered, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? You need yeah. another, this book is crying out for another book to answer some of the questions raised in it. Mm. And what book would you recommend? Well, <laughs> as a pastor, uh, I'd recommend God's word. I think that uh, you're, you're going to find a lot of the same conversations and, uh, in my experience, sufficient and satisfying answers to those questions. Well, what do you think about this? Next time in town, next time I'm in town, we'll get together and we can do like one of the books from from the Bible or or a, a book on on along those lines, along that topic mm -hmm. that that you'd like to talk sure. about. Sure, I think that'd be fun. Yeah. All right. Well, the other question and. We, you know, based on that previous question, I could probably derive some of this, but mm -hmm. um, explicitly, uh, who do you think you would recommend this book to? Besides, you know, 101 psychology I, or uh, philosophy yeah, students. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend it to everybody. Really? I would recommend it to people who are interested in literature, and I would recommend it to people who are interested in philosophy and probably no other. The reason is that people who are interested in literature, I think will find uh, that this is a great literary work that echoes so many other pieces of great literature. There are common threads throughout all the great works of literature, um, common themes and motifs that appear and not that any of them answer them, but all of the great works of literature raise them, uh, whether it's Edgar Allan Poe or Shakespeare or um, any of the American literature. Um, so I would recommend it to them. I think you should. I think to be well-read in literature, you should know this book. And then I would recommend it to people who are um, have more of a philosophical bent and and not only because it raises all of these questions, you know, uh, ultimate questions and things, but because I think that people who are interested in philosophy may be well suited to understand the content of it. A lot of it is not accessible to, I would call just the average reader. Um, there's, there's like a whole chapter in here where it's Lord Henry just spouting off some of his philosophy and I think to really grasp like the difference between where Basil's coming from and where Lord Henry's coming from. And then you just, you need, 
you need to have some tools that I don't think the average reader possesses unless they have studied a little philosophy and unless they have been exposed to some of these ideas in other uh, areas of study. Okay. So if you, if you haven't had an experience with, with philosophy or, um, or, or things like that, but you're interested in it, uh, keep this book in mind uh, as you, as you travel on down that road. Great to hear. Um, Well, fantastic. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Um, for those of you at home, if you want to connect with or follow uh, the podcast, you can find us on Twitter at Left on Red Books, on Instagram at Left on Red Books Podcast, and you can also find us on Goodreads. Uh, Dylan, it's been an honor to have you on the podcast. Um, a, a great friend of mine once again, and and I was really looking forward to having you on. So thank you so much for joining me. Okay. And Thank you for telling me about your favorite book. You bet. Thanks. Let's do it again.